How far would you go to fight your depression? So the heart is still beating, but I couldn't breathe on my own. Um, and they took it all the way down. So he actually, my brother came to see one of the sessions and the anesthesiologist showed him the monitor and he said, see here at the top is 100, here at 40, this is where we start cutting people open. This is where like we start to like really do the surgery. We're taking your sister all the way down to zero. It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. As of a couple years ago, my guest this week had been living in a world of extremes. A depressive episode so extremely deep and ferocious that she could neither bear it nor solve it. She fought that depression with the most extreme depression treatment I've ever heard of. I am Heather B. Armstrong, mother of two young daughters, and I am in Salt Lake City. And the B is mandatory, as I understand it. The B is mandatory. It's a, it's a, it's my tribute to Mormonism. <laughs> but how is that a tribute to Mormonism? Um, the main, the, we call them the general authorities. Uh-huh. Um, the, the main leaders in the church, they all have their middle initial whenever they oh. are presented. Yes. That's like Mormon leader Samuel L. Jackson. Yes, Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Noted elder Samuel L. Jackson. (laughs) Heather B. Armstrong is the author of the blog Deuce, D-O-O-C-E, one of the first and still most popular so-called mommy blogs. It was started in 2001. It's an honest, entertaining, and often very funny account of her life, kids, dogs, marriage, divorce. Heather's book, It Sucked and Then I Cried, How I Had a Baby, a Breakdown, and a Much-Needed Margarita, was a New York Times bestseller in 2009. Her new book is a New York Times bestseller as well. It's The Valedictorian of Being Dead, the true story of dying ten times to live. She joined us from Salt Lake City, but she grew up in Tennessee. I look back now, having been through many, many, many years of therapy, and my therapist and I agree that I was a depressed kid. It sort of manifested itself in in anxiety, um, and in I stifled everything to make my parents happy. Heather was raised Mormon, and that's a religion that puts a lot of value on righteous living and purity, which complicated things. I would be devastated if I had a naughty thought. I really did think that I needed to go pray and repent for days on end about a naughty thought. And I thought that if I could be the best Mormon I could be, then my mother would be happy. My mother and father had a bit of a a terrible divorce, and my mother was extraordinarily unhappy for a long time. And I thought, well, if I'm a good Mormon and I'm a good student and I am perfect in every possible way, then that's going to make her happy. So for a very long time, I had no identity other than being Mormon and being my mother's daughter. How did the church feel about something like therapy or medication? You know, it wasn't really discussed. Um, More than anything, my father did not believe in it. Um, My father did not believe in depression or therapy or medication. He didn't believe that depression was an actual um, situation. (laughs) What did he think was going on? Oh, you know, he he grew up in the, um, he calls it the ghetto of Louisville, Kentucky, and he pulled himself up and 
you know, worked 37 years at IBM and, and thinks that everybody should just sort of, you know, snap out of it, pull, you know, pull yourself out of this. Just if I can do it, you can. Which is a preferred method for people who've never actually been in it. Exactly. Heather thought achieving perfection in school, in church, in life was not only possible, but necessary. Other people noticed and disagreed. When I was a junior in high school, I was taking AP physics and was just a demon about making sure that I had a perfect score on everything. And my physics teacher actually pulled me into the hallway one day and shook me by the shoulders and said, you are going to have a a total collapse and you're going to break. You have to let go. You have to let go. And I was like, how could she possibly ask me this? Like, doesn't she know that if I let go, then I let go of myself? And she was exactly right. But she keeps driving forward. Achievement, achievement, achievement. She gets to Brigham Young University for college, Mormon institution. The intensity and perfectionism still in overdrive. I just thought that I was nervous. I thought, oh, I'm getting anxious for a test, when that anxiousness never ceased. Um, and, it, and, and then my sophomore year in college, um, I sort of snapped, and that snap um, was like, something is wrong with me. <laughs> I really realized I had that thought, like, something is wrong with me, and I need to get help. I was working 20 hours a week, taking a full course load, and I just... You know, a depressed person wants to, at that point, my my depression, I call it old school, (laughs) I call it old school, kind of like boring depression where I just wanted to sleep all the time. And it was very hard to get out of bed. It was very hard to get motivated to do anything. And um, I realized that I did not want to get up and go to class, which for a valedictorian of high school and a valedictorian of Mormonism was a huge, like, I did not want to go. Um... And so I called my mom and dad and said, something is wrong with me. And you wanted to drop out at that point. I did. I I did not want to go back to class. I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want to look at anybody's face because I was so embarrassed. It was this sense of of letting people down just like before, huh? Exactly. I I let everybody down. And not only that, I, I lost myself in realizing, okay, something's wrong with me. Yeah. Um, why did you stay? (laughs) My father of course, was like, you need to, you need to pray and you need to, you know, come to terms with the fact that life is hard. Whereas my mother has, you know, she's one of 10 kids and she's basically the only one who doesn't have depression or bipolar disorder. So my mother called my uncle who lived in Utah and he's a psychiatrist and he got me in to see a psychiatrist. And within three days, I was sitting across from him and he put me on a dose of Zoloft that took effect within about four days. And um, suddenly life didn't hurt. And suddenly air smelled good and food tasted good. And I didn't, I didn't mind walking around campus. There was another change that happened at BYU as well in regard to her church. Um, it was a, a very huge part of my identity um, I was Heather, and then I was Mormon. That was basically the the uh, how the the sequence went, and um, very deeply believed it. But then, during my tenure at BYU, um, slowly became to recognize other things about myself that didn't fit with the religion. Like what? 
Um, <laughs> like critical thinking. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh no! Oh, I I am in Utah. Saying this stuff out loud is very scary. Um, <laughs> um, you know, evolution, climate change. Um, I realized that I was liberal at heart. Mm-hmm. and um, disagreed with a lot of what was going on at BYU especially and just sort of had an, an awakening my senior year and left the church when I graduated. So some self-discovery, good response to meds, but depression can be persistent. It's like that old meme about Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris doesn't rest, he waits. Heather's depression goes into waiting mode. She gets married and they want kids and she goes off the Zoloft. When I went off the Zoloft, I shouldn't have gone off the Zoloft to get pregnant now, according to my psychiatrist. Um, I experienced a bout of postpartum depression with my first child so bad that I ended up in the hospital. And that's where I met my psychiatrist who has been treating me ever since. And he put me on a cocktail of medication that transformed my life again. And, um, you know, I became, through accident and hard work and luck, um, the queen of the mommy bloggers and made a living out of being the woman who wrote about life in Utah with her children and her marriage and her dogs. And um, when I wanted to separate part of the depression that I experienced during my divorce was I'm committing career suicide by doing this. So, so yet again, I have to give up this part of my identity in order to accept the fact that I'm not well. And had you been going to talk therapy during all this, too? Oh, yes. I went to talk therapy for many, many, many years. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, did that that make a difference in how you were processing these kind of thoughts that were coming through and and trying to see your own patterns? Because so much of therapy is about like, ah, I see what my brain is doing there. Yes. And – she, my therapist is is of the idea that she is going to guide me to the thoughts and let me come to the thoughts naturally. She's going to guide me there so that when I come to the thoughts, they haven't been planted there by her. They, these are things that I realize about myself, and it took years for me to realize. And, and this is no—I'm not sliding my ex-husband at all that I had married my father, thinking that I had not— and I was repeating old habits, like I was really shrinking inside of myself and losing my identity inside of him because I was afraid of him. And he was imposing. Um, and I came to that realization myself through years of her helping me come to that. And once I got a divorce, um, a lot of things became very, very clear to me. Like what? Um, that, <laughs> um, that I am... Um, I'm fine by myself. Um, I don't need the, an identity outside of myself. Um, and my voice is my voice. My name is my name. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, I don't need to hide it inside of anyone else. And it was very liberating. To this point, Heather had found herself in hard situations and found ways to emerge and feel wiser. But the hard situations got harder. She was, by this point, famous from her blog and in the middle of a divorce. (laughs) 
It was a horrifying experience. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of people who had a lot of opinions. and um, On the internet? The York, really? On the internet, I know. Who would have known? Oh, man. And that was like, right, Twitter was kind of at a, like, it's, it's one of its early peaks. And um, it was... Like the New York Times covered my divorce and the local paper covered it and the Huffington Post covered it. And <sighs> there were forums everywhere like dissecting my marriage and dissecting me. And it was it was really, really, really horrifying because divorce itself is, you know, already painful in itself. And having commentary from people who have no idea what they're talking about um, for a sensitive person like me, it was like, why are people turning me into a monster when they don't understand any of the dynamics that had happened. And I call it being deliberately misunderstood. Um, and that's sort of what happens to, to personalities um, online is people twist and turn us into something that they they are reflecting from themselves and it has nothing to do with us. So when they're lashing out about how horrible you are, they're finding something horrible in themselves? Yes, or mm. they're working through something, and by lashing out at me, it helps them feel a little bit better about themselves. Right, transfer that yeah. that angst. Were you right. able to separate that? Like, I mean, like you're talking about it now in a really healthy way. Were you able to say, "Oh, they're reacting to Heather, the this version of Heather that I'm putting out there, so this doesn't count. I'm not going to take this seriously. I'm not going to let it hurt me." Oh no, no! I did not. I did not handle it well at all. No, 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 no! <laughs> it was bad. Yeah, it was really terrible. Yeah, it was horrifying. Were you reading all the things that everybody was saying? No, I mean, it, inevitably, I I would just come across it because it was everywhere. I tried not to read it, but sometimes you catch a sentence or two, and that sentence or two will rattle around in your head for you know two days. Like, why would they say that about me? And where did they where did they get that notion? And it was very hard to separate. I tried to isolate myself from it, but man, it was a brutal. It was it was a brutal two years of uh, commentary. Heather says she didn't really start processing that public response and what it meant for three or four years, not until 2016 when she started training for a marathon. When I go running, you know, that's when I do all of my thinking, and um, and I'm not a runner. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you ran a marathon, so yeah, I did. you are. When I actually, I guided a, a runner who was visually impaired in the Boston Marathon. Okay. They asked me to do this. I couldn't say no. So I had to train, and I was vegan, and it was just a recipe for a complete disaster. <laughs> because it, it threw off just the, your, your chemistry? It threw off, yes. My chemistry was, like, blitzed. And I was a full-time, at that point, full-time single mom because my ex had moved across the country. So I had to take care of my kids alone. I'm training for a marathon. like, the, And the training schedule is crazy. And I'm hungry. Like, I was so hungry. I could never get enough food to eat. And I just sort of went down and down and down a hole that I couldn't get out of. That's so funny because you hear about uh, runners, and obviously everybody's different, but you hear about runners who, you know, I started running and I felt better and I got my whole life together. And, <laughs> you know, now I wrote an opera and now I've opened an amusement park <laughs> and the whole thing. But but it just it just screwed you up, huh? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Utah is very, like, like you know, like the Midwest, it gets very, very snowy during the winter when I was turning. And I'm 
horribly clumsy. I would have broken like my skull if I had run outside in the snow. Um, so I did most of my training on, in a basement on a on a treadmill. Oh. Like I did my 16-mile long run on a treadmill. Well, that does sound like madness. <laughs> While eating beans and kale. <laughs> no. <laughs> the marathon happens, and Heather thinks, aha, now I'll get back to normal. Uh, no, it got worse and worse and worse, and it just... Um, what form did it take as it got worse? How did it, how did it show up? I, um, I didn't leave the house. Um, I didn't shower. I didn't change clothes. Um, I was extraordinarily sullen and um, pulled back, and, and I wasn't expressive. Um, I didn't engage in any of the normal activities. I, I didn't listen to music. I didn't take pictures. I, I didn't create anything. And I just sort of sunk into a hole because it felt safe in a dark space. Did you know it was depression? I did, but I was afraid um, because I felt really, really, really bad. It was the worst episode I've ever experienced. Did it feel reassuring in a way to, to be that deep in a depression? Did it feel like a natural state? Did it feel like where you belonged? Yeah, actually, that's a really good way to put it. Um, it, it almost felt like depression is sort of like an, an, one of my limbs um, that I've always carried around. And here it was. I had pulled the limb out of its sleeve, and here it was in its full form. Um, and it was something that, I mean, it, it's a part of my identity. It's something I've always struggled with. And there it was out in the open for me to sort of um, twist and turn around and look at and behold. I think the term perfect storm gets overused, but you got a history with depression here, a divorce, public attacks as a result of that, and she's trying to raise two daughters as a single mom. They knew something was wrong. Um, I tried my best to hide it from them, but kids are extraordinarily perceptive, um, and they were very protective of me. And um, as as dark as that time was, I know my kids grew a lot because they went the extra mile to make sure that they're can I cuss on the show? Yes. Okay. They made sure that their shit was done. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, and it was probably, I hate that I, I did this, but I'm pretty sure that my older daughter assumed the role of the young Heather and trying to be like, okay, I needed to make my mom happy. Um, so the cycle continued. <laughs> yeah. So that's what you had done with your mom. Exactly. Everyone's yeah. in charge of entertaining their mothers. <laughs> <laughs> Heather spiraled further. Nothing that had worked before worked any longer. I was really, 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 really desperate by January of 2017. Uh, I was in such a horrifying place um, and at one point didn't think that I was going to be able to get out of bed. Um, And I needed a refill on one of my medications and my psychiatrist refused to do it unless I came in to see him because I hadn't seen him in mm, 10 months. And um, I made an appointment, and I was scared to death to see him. I did not want him to see me because I knew that if he saw me, he would know. And that's exactly what happened is I sat in his office, and he looked at me, and he just sat. He had a clipboard in his lap, and he just threw it on the floor. And he was like, you don't even have to tell me. And I just looked at him, and he said, how long has this been going on? And he started yelling at me. (laughs) 
<laughs> I was like, you're not making it better. <laughs> wow. And I was so afraid that he was going to ask me certain questions and I would have to answer them and he would say, well, I can't leave you. I can't let you leave. Right. Um, and so, but instead, he looked at me and he said, I'm simultaneously furious at you that you haven't come in sooner and also so excited because <laughs> there's a there's a study going on here at the University of Utah and they need a patient and you're perfect for it. Heather was going to be the third person to undergo this experimental treatment. Hear how it goes in just a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying depression a little bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious illness. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It can be an awkward conversation, but makeitok.org is full of information you can use, what to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitok.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Hey, Thwadballs, in case you missed the news, I have written a book called, and get this title, The Hilarious World of Depression. It worked well, so why not just keep doing it? It's a memoir with a lot of stuff from the show and how the show came to exist. I think it will be good for you to own. The Hilarious World of Depression, the book, will be released in May, but you can pre-order now at your choice of booksellers. Find that jump page at hilariousworld.org. Back with Heather B. Armstrong, when last we left her, she was being crushed by depression, nothing was working, and she had just heard about an experimental treatment. He called the guy right there, right as I was sitting there, and said, I've got her sitting right here. Can I give her the paperwork? And you said, sure? Um, I said, I'll think about it, <laughs> okay. after he explained to me, after he explained to me what was going to happen. <laughs> What was going to happen was a series of 10 sessions of an experimental treatment called burst suppression. It's somewhat similar to electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. In both cases, the treatment is for people who are severely, dangerously depressed and haven't responded to any other treatment. With ECT, the patient is anesthetized and then receives electric shocks to induce seizures. Only takes a few minutes and can be really effective. But some patients have pretty severe side effects. Memory loss, uh, confusion, permanent memory loss. Um, and it's very debilitating for a lot of people, even though it makes them feel better. So they're trying to come up with an alternative and there were some studies done in Austria in the early 90s where they used an anesthetic to create the same effect. This new study, conducted at the University of Utah, set out to avoid the shock, the seizure, and the side effects of ECT, but with the same concept of effectively rebooting the brain. It's not all that different from turning off your computer and then restarting it. So instead of the electricity, they used propofol, a powerful anesthetic. This was the first time they ever used propofol this way, and um, they took me all the way down to zero. Heather says zero meant she was in a coma so deep she was nearly brain dead. For 15 to 18 minutes, um, 
over the course of three weeks, 10 times. The chance of actual death in this scenario is estimated at less than one in 10,000. They explained it to me. The heart is independent of the brain, actually. And so the heart is still beating, but I couldn't breathe on my own. Um, And they took it all the way down. So he actually, my brother came to see one of the sessions and the anesthesiologist showed him the monitor. And he said, see here at the top is 100, here at 40, this is where we start cutting people open. This is where like we start to like really do the surgery. We're taking your sister all the way down to zero. Uh, no pun intended. I was scared to fucking death. I was scared to death. Yeah. I mean, I had no clue what to expect. Yeah. These people are going to nearly kill you. <laughs> please enjoy this nice beverage. <laughs> please, please don't like d- turn a wrong knob. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because uh, you've got my life right here in your hands. And they, I called it the valedictorian of being dead because I, when they hooked me up to the propofol, I went down so fast uh, the, the the first two patients before me sort of it took them a while to go down. I basically hit zero almost instantly, and they had to struggle. They, and my mother described it as like a, a rag doll to try to get the breathing tube in my mouth. Through the ten sessions, Heather crashed out so hard that she only ever had one dream. Coming out of the anesthesia at the first session, she yelled about getting her daughters to their piano lessons. How do they wake you up? You have you come up naturally. You you basically wake oh. up on your own. Yeah. Wow. They they release the anesthesia and you come up to a point and then, and the most fascinating part about this is it's two men working together and doing this procedure, and they're the mechanism is their brains. They're like, okay, how much more do we give for how long? And as they release me, they have to make the decision. Okay, is she okay to breathe on her own now? And so then when they take out the breathing tube. Everybody would hold everybody would hold their breath waiting for me to breathe. So it's more art than science. They're just going by feel. Yeah, that's yeah, I would say that. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can you imagine going through that? Now can you imagine going through that with your mom in the room or watching your kid go through that? My mother watched that happen every single time. My stepfather drove me and was there every single time. Yeah. My mother, people have joked that if this was ever made into a movie, my mother would be the lead character. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, you know, you, you can't drive yourself home from an appointment like this. But, but why did you want your mother specifically there? My mother wanted to be there. Okay. My mother demanded it. My mother was like, we are going to do this. I, she watched me suffer. She listened to me scream into the phone for over 18 months. Um, she was the one. She sort of was the... She got the blunt force of my um, trauma, and she was like, I'm going to see you through this, and I'm going to see you get well. Did that help, having her there? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. My mother is an angel, and everyone who has read the book has said something about her. Like, where did she come from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, she struck me as, as uh, like, mother in the pure Joseph Campbell idyllic sense like this yes this pure drive to protect and and help yes and and her the beauty in my mother is her duality because she's the most irreverent person you'll ever meet as well i mean there was there was there there was one treatment where um i was they had started the propofol and i (laughs) i shout i shouted into the room 
um, sorry for all the talking that my mom's going to do while I'm out. See ya. <laughs> and right, right as I went under, she flipped me off in front of everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that's not standard. Uh, that's not in the Book of Mormon no, as I understand it's not. it. No. No. And then how did it evolve over the course of the 10 treatments? Like how, how did your mental health evolve? When did you start to notice a difference? I, um, I write about this in the book, how sometimes we don't know that we were feeling better until other people point it out to us. Um, they're like, wait a minute, you showered. And I'm like, oh, did I? Uh-huh. I think I showered. <laughs> oh, I didn't even realize I showered. Um, and I started to put on clothes. I started to put on clean clothes. Um, I didn't notice any difference after the fourth treatment. And I, I was frustrated. And... Um, but it was after the fifth treatment when I distinctively felt like um, a switch had been flipped. And um, I heard music in a different way. I saw color in a different way. Food tasted different. Um, and I suddenly had the realization, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did I really want to be dead? Was that a thought that I had? Like it was that, it was that much of a flip. Yeah. Talk about the wanting to be dead because that's, that's a factor uh, when you were really at your worst, but there was a distinction in it. I wanted to be dead. Um, I wanted to cease existing. I didn't want to have any sort of sense, sense, like I didn't want any sensory input from anything. I just wanted a a total darkness, which sounds like suicide, but I had no plans to kill myself because I knew I couldn't because I had two kids to take care of. So I never made a plan. I never wrote a note. I just, the distinct the con- the constant, constant refrain in my head was, please let me be dead. Just let me be dead. Because what you really wanted was everything to stop. Everything to I wanted nothingness. Yeah. I wanted total nothingness, yes. Do you think you wanted nothingness because you couldn't see the possibility of feeling better? Yes. I thought, I'm going to feel this. I had resigned myself to the fact that I would feel that way for the rest of my life. And that I would never know joy again. I would never know love. I would never enjoy music. And it was devastating. Um, the idea of nothingness, what sounded, was actually the only thing that brought me joy. Her mom and stepdad were at every treatment, and at her mom's suggestion, Heather's dad showed up for one of them, too. My mother was really suffering by the seventh or eighth treatment, and she was like, I can't carry this anymore by myself. Your father calls me and asks me how I'm doing, and I have to lie to him and tell him that I'm fine when I'm going every other day to watch this happen to you. And I would really like him to witness this because then maybe he will be understanding of what you've been through. And your dad has not traditionally been understanding of what you were going through. Right. He's skeptical. Um, He's supportive, but I I think he's skeptical of the whole idea of the science and the medication and the mood. What was your relationship with your dad at that point? How close were you? Um, He lives here in Utah. Um, We don't see each other very often. We talk. We talk about fatherly, daughterly things like accounting and bank accounts and, you know, job performance. And it was it was fine. 
it was fine, um, but not nearly anything like what me and my mother have. Which number treatment did he come to? I believe he came to the eighth treatment, okay. the seventh or eighth treatment. And um, he and my stepmother were there, and I remember as I was going under, seeing both of their faces, they were completely stoic. Um, there was no light in their faces at all. Um, and as I went down, I remember feeling sad. Even though I felt so much better, I, m- I remember feeling sad. Um, and I did not know this. My mother had to remind me after she read the first copy, um, the first manuscript before it got finalized. I did not remember when I woke up or as I was waking up, my father sat next to me and rubbed his thumb over my eyebrows to comfort me um, for probably 10 or 15 minutes. And my, my mother thinks it was his only way of expressing that he he understood that I was not okay and this was his only way of being able to say, I support you. It was a tender moment. He didn't have the vocabulary to say it. In Heather's book, she reconnects to life more and more as the treatments go on, sometimes happier, but just more like a person who can live in the world and appreciate being alive. So then you go, you go through all 10 and uh, are cured? <laughs> <It's>, it almost <laughs> seems like the way you describe it, it really seems like a, a, they, they did this thing to you. It's almost like how they might treat a broken leg or something. Yeah, I, I call it the reboot of the computer. Yeah. Um, where sometimes you have to reboot a computer like three or four times right. to like get it going. <laughs> have you tried shutting your brain off and turning it back on again? Exactly. Um, <laughs> I, I Chronic depression is a lot like type 1 diabetes in that you can't cure it. You're going to live with it for the rest of your life, and you're going to have to manage the symptoms. And um, I, I feel like they got my brain back to a point where I was able to think about um, I was I was able to first to come out of the fog of the depression that I was in, but I was also able to look at life and go, I'm going to avoid doing this, and I'm going to avoid this, and I'm going to avoid this, so that I don't get anxious or depressed again in that manner. And how is Heather B. Armstrong achieving that? I am not ever running ever again. <laughs> <laughs> if someone's chasing you, you're like, okay, fine, whatever. Fine, you can beat me up. I'm not running because I'm not going. I'm not going back to feeling wanting to feel dead. Um, I don't. I no longer am a vegan. Um, I wish I could be, but I realized I needed a little bit of um, protein in my diet, like animal protein. I'm going to make a lot of vegans mad with that, but it, you know, for my mental health, that's what I had to do. Um, and I just avoid situations. I say no a lot, and. The hardest thing is to ask for help. <laughs> ah, you wouldn't ask for help before? Oh, no. Asking for help is weak. Oh. You don't ask for help. Only weak people do that. Right. No, yeah. that's not true. Yeah. It's not true. <laughs> so how that that's a pattern that you've been able to break? It is. I ask for help all the time now. It's hard. It's something I work on constantly. But I do find myself going, can you please help me? <laughs> <laughs> as the words sort of like tremble as they come out of my mouth. Well, you know, it's fine. that's a that's a common thing for kids who grew up um, not getting the care that they needed is a reluctance as adults to ask for help because you figure, well, you know, people are going to let me down or people just aren't aren't going to be there, so I better just you know figure out how to fly this plane all on my own. 
Right. And, and the, I, I didn't want to be a burden. Ah. I, I, I didn't want to feel like a burden. I'm no one's burden. Is that the divorce talking or the church talking? Yeah. It's the divorce. That's the divorce talking. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Because your parents were so miserable, your mother was so miserable that you mm-hmm. didn't want to make it worse. Exactly. My my needs did my need and, and she never said this to me, but my needs were not important because if I had needs, then that was just going to put one more thing on her plate that she didn't need. I mean, I got to say this whole prescription sounds great. Like don't go running, eat more cheeseburgers and ask everyone to do things for you. <laughs> <laughs> the Heather B. Armstrong oh God, plan for the future is fantastic. Exactly. <laughs> Heather B. Armstrong is feeling great after her treatment. The pilot study she took part in is over. The scientific paper written about it stated that six of the ten people who tried the propofol treatment reported at least a 50% improvement in their depressive symptoms. Based on that, the University of Utah is in the middle of phase two of their propofol study. There are years and years of studies to come, but the paper concluded that if the propofol treatment proves effective, it could become a therapeutic option for people like Heather with severe depression and limited treatment options. But this doesn't mean Heather will be 100% guaranteed feeling great forever. She looks to the future optimistically, but also a bit apprehensively. She says she's learned a lot about herself and her mom. I'm, I've always known that my mother is the most fabulous human who ever lived. Um, but I, I really did not understand the scope of her dedication to me. Um, you know, I really, really scarred her when I left the church um, and felt bad about it for many, many years. And she did just the, she did such a turnaround over when my kids were born and the help that she's given me. Um, my mother is made of steel. And I, <laughs> I realized that when, whenever I do lose her it will be the most um, horrific experience of my life. Really? So are you just setting yourself up for another Mm -hmm. crash? No, no, no. I think I've never really lost anyone close to me. Um, And I, you know, I've talked to people who've lost their parents and they've talked about their grief and I've never really understood that. I think I got a glimpse into um, what the grief will be like if she's not in my life. And that was the perspective it gave me. I've lost immediate family members and it's your description of um what you went through with this treatment is sort of resonant to it actually because it's really? this well it's it's a reordering it's a saying okay you know this person's gone you know and the circumstances in which they went you know are are going to be there and it's it's just going to be different from now on forever. And you can say it'll get easier or you can say it won't get easier. And, and you know, that's all pretty subjective. But you just sort of say, oh, the difference has been made. And, you know, yes. after this, things are just different forever now. Yes. And that's kind of what you went through. It's absolutely what I went through. It is.
The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Christina Lopez is our producer for Digital Things. Editing is a team effort. It involves video conferencing. Phyllis Fletcher, however, is our editor. Recording engineer this time out, Veronica Rodriguez. Our technical director is John Miller. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting a conversation like that can be awkward, but Make It OK has tips on what to say and what not to say. It has stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. Hilariousworld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter and come visit us on Facebook as well. A lot of good conversations happening over there with your fellow Thwadballs. On our next episode, Ryan Bingham had to decide between life in rodeo and life in music. It was not difficult. I used to drive 10 hours to go get on a bull that could possibly stomp my teeth out in my life, you know, so to drive 10 hours to play guitar for an hour for and drink beer with a bunch of people outside. <laughs> I was like, if this is as good as it gets, I've got it made, you know. <laughs> I guess when you start with bulls, wait, is there going to be a bull at the venue? Yeah. No? Yeah, am I going to get my ass kicked when I get there? The chances go from 80% to 50, you know. <laughs> you still might get beat up in the parking lot, but it won't be by a bull, you know. I'm John Moe. Bye now. What if I was to tell you this is just grease paint? Would you say I'm a hopeless case? Say it ain't so. Would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know. Say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know